All right, by show of hands, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand high in the air. How many of you like to sing? I didn't say you're good at it. That's not the question. How many of you enjoy singing or doing something that you call singing, even if everyone else goes, that's not really singing? All right, good news, good news. So uh, um, it's no surprise to me that you raise your hand. Some of you probably didn't because you're afraid I was going to ask you to sing. Uh, we're done with that portion of worship for today, so I'm not going to do that. Uh, but it's really no surprise to me that there were so many hands who put their hand in the air when I asked if you like to sing. Uh, for a lot of us, for most of, most of us, I would say, music is a key part of our life. As a matter of fact, if you look at all the most important times, all the, the times that we cherish in life, I would bet they have a soundtrack. As a matter of fact, I mentioned earlier in the service that Kristalina isn't here today because she, uh, her daughter had a, had a child, so Kristalina had a granddaughter, Naomi Faith. I don't have a picture to put up. I've seen a picture. She's, like all babies, beautiful. Um, Naomi Faith was born Thursday afternoon, and um, wouldn't you know it, in most hospitals, when a baby is born, there's something that happens over the PA system. What do they do? They play a lullaby, right? So there it is, music, and the first most important part of life. If you were to go home today and, and uh, gather some of your friends, and if it was appropriate, and there was a cake and candles and your number of years on it, probably your friends would do what? They would sing to you. This is, this is just the most important times in life. We involve music. If you're having a great morning, you got out of bed, you didn't stub your toe, you felt good, good night's sleep, you get in the shower, and if I don't miss my guess, you're probably singing in the shower. Doesn't happen in my house, but I hear it happens in some houses. Or I think about it, you go to a football game, what happens at halftime? A band plays. I don't know. I go for a hot dog. A band plays. Isn't that right, Luke? Yeah, Luke was in the marching band. Uh, you go to a baseball game, seventh inning stretch. What happens? Take me out to the ball game. We all sing, right? You go to the Olympics. The dude stands up or the, the lady stands up who won the gold medal. They stand on platforms. They put a, a medal around them. And what do they do? They play the national anthem. Music is a key part of our lives. It happens at all the most important times. And I think that great moments have soundtracks because when God created us, he created us to love music. Um, that being the case, it's no surprise that the book of the Bible that's the longest is the one that's filled with songs. The book of Psalms, we're going to start a series in the book of Psalms today, has been called God's Jukebox. Or we may say his, his iTunes library or his Spotify playlist. It's in the book of Psalms that we find the songs that God loves the most. These, this is the music. These are the words and the lyrics and the melodies that God's people have been singing to him since as long as God's people have existed. And so what we want to do is we want to take some time and we want to look at this, uh, this playlist that's been curated uh, and, and learn what God would say to us as we sing these songs back to him. So uh, let's talk about the book of Psalms. Uh, the, actually, Psalm chapter 118, 118, is the middle chapter of the Bible. So if you take your Bible and just kind of open it up to the middle, there's a good chance that you're going to be in Psalm. Ironically, I opened to Psalm 118. My Bible's not marked for that. Um, but go ahead, give it a try on your Bible. It depends on how many maps you've got in the back. If you've got the Pastor Joel Bible, that's probably three quarters maps and the rest is crammed in before that. That's just a little joke, folks. 
Pastor Joel loved that joke. He thought it was funny. You could laugh at it. Yeah, there we go. I'll let him know you laughed so, hard, so heartily. So uh, go ahead and find Psalms in your Bible. Let's just, let's just do a real quick tutorial on God's Spotify to kind of give us all a sense of this book that we're going to be studying over the course of this summer. First of all, the book of Psalms is the longest book in the Bible. I may have already mentioned the book of Psalms is made up of, 100, of 150 chapters or 150 Psalms. So if I say turn to Psalm 19, I don't have to say Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19 is a Psalm. Okay, so it's made up of 150 different Psalms, which makes it the longest book of chapters in the Bible. Matter of fact, the next closest book in the Bible in regards to number of chapters, anybody know what it is? I'm not going to give you long enough to check your table of contents. It's Isaiah with 66. So when it comes to the number of chapters, Psalms is the longest. When it comes to the number of verses, Psalms is also the longest. There are 2,526 verses in the book of Psalms. In all 150 Psalms, if you count all the verses, I didn't do it this week. I cheated and looked on the internet. Um, (laughs) Just being honest, there's 2,526. Now, the next closest book in regards to the number of verses is the book of Genesis, which has 1,533. Actually, this blew my mind. If you take all the verses in Psalms and stack them against all the verses in the last 12 books of the Old Testament, we call them the Minor Prophets, Hosea, all the way through the Italian prophet Malachi. If you stack those next to each other, the book of Psalms is more than twice as high in regards to number of verses. This is a long book. There's a lot packed in here. Truthfully, though, when we say it's the longest book, it may be a little bit misleading because if you were to take the book of Psalms in the original Hebrew in which it was written, and if you were to count individually every word, and we go this direction because you read from right to left in Hebrew, you would find, this is going to blow your mind, there are 30,147 words in the book of Psalms in the Hebrew language. That's a ton of words. That's more than I speak in a week. You're not buying that, are you? (laughs) Now catch this, though. That makes it not the longest book in the Bible in regards to words. Both Jeremiah and Genesis are both longer when it comes to word count. Okay, so now we know all that. Psalms is the longest book in the Bible, depending on how you measure it. Also, in Hebrews, the book of Psalms is called Tehillim. Tehillim, which means, get this, songs of praise. So this is God's hymnal. This is his songbook. Uh, These are the songs that he wants us to sing to them. He enjoys it. The book of Psalms is divided into five sections, often called books. You can see in your note sheet uh, how those sections are broken down. This, This kind of breaking down into five is all over the Bible. It's not unique to Psalms. As a matter of fact, if you open up the Old Testament, the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and the Hebrew are called the Torah. They kind of set the stage for everything else that comes through the Old Testament. And then if you flip over to the New Testament, the first five books are, good, you're awake, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and Acts. Those don't have a fancy name like Torah, but they also set the stage for what comes through in the rest of the New Testament. We have this this kind of works of five throughout the the Bible. The book of Psalms is divided into five books. Uh, We've got the five books at the beginning, the New and the Old Testament. Um... 
Lamentations uh, actually is kind of a, a song in five movements, if you will. Uh, several of the prophets, Amos and, and Isaiah, come to mind. Uh, when they give their prophecies, they kind of do them in, in five-fold increments. So, so this kind of thing of five is throughout. As a matter of fact, there's a, in Exodus 20, there's this real popular thing. Uh, there's 10 of them. Uh, they're called the... Ten Commandments. Yes, okay, come on, stay with me here. I'm going to need you to interact with me a little bit today. They're called the Ten Commandments. Wouldn't you know it, they came on two stones, so that would be five and five, right? The first five are kind of spiritual commands. So I'm your only God. Don't worship anyone else. Don't make idols. Honor the Sabbath. Honor your father and mother. And then like the second stone, the second tablet are more like social commandments. So like no killing, no stealing. These aren't in order. No adultery, no coveting. Don't be a bonehead or something to that effect. Um, so this kind of movement of five happens all throughout the Bible. Psalm is divided into five collections called books. The Psalms were written over a period of 1,000 years by more than seven people. So it took longer to write the book of Psalms. I understand it wasn't written as a book, like from chapter one to chapter 150. It was, this is a collection, right? It's a playlist, it's curated. But it took a thousand years for them all to read. That's longer than our country has been in existence. And best we can figure, it took about seven people or groups of people. As a matter of fact, I found this great, uh, this great graphic online. Let's look at this. This kind of breaks it down. I don't know how well you can read it from your seat, but here on the left, uh, David wrote 73 of the Psalms. He might have written more, but we know for sure that he wrote 73 because he told us. At the beginning, it says a Psalm of David, and then it might describe a little bit more what we're going to encounter. Uh, then in the middle, let's see, Asaph, he was David's worship leader. Uh, he and his sons wrote 12. Uh, Korah, was a, uh, he led a major family of priests. And uh, together they wrote, it said 11, but uh, I put 10 and a half because uh, we find out later they actually collaborated down at the bottom right-hand corner with He-Man. How many of you He-Man fans knew? Okay, bad joke. So they worked together to write a psalm. Uh, we've got uh, uh, some other contributors like Solomon wrote two. Moses wrote one. That's Psalm 90, which makes that probably the oldest piece of literature we have in the Bible. Ethan wrote one. He was an Ezraite. Uh, He-Man was an Ezraite, and he combined with or collaborated with Korah and his sons. And then we have 50 that this graphic calls orphans. They... Uh, Biblical scholars go back and forth on theirs when it comes right down to it. We just don't know who wrote those 50. So over a thousand years, it took seven people to write and compose and put together these psalms. Now, the book of Psalms isn't like the other books in the Bible where it seems to have, um, you know, a, a specific narrative it's telling or a specific point or it's giving us a glimpse into a specific section of history. The book of Psalms is a playlist. That's why we talk about it maybe being a juke, jukebox or a hymnal because it collects these songs that people have written. But there's still a sense in which it has a key verse and just for, our, just for our sakes, we could, you could go all around on this, but we're going to say that Psalm 1914 is the key verse of the book of Psalms. It says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. 
So we're going to start this series we're calling God's Song in Psalm 19, if you'd like to find that in your text. Again, if you look to about the middle of your Bible and flip a few pages one way or the other, you'll probably find Psalm 19. It doesn't take many pages to make up a considerable move in, in the book of Psalms. Often those are shorter chapters or shorter, shorter psalm. We're going to listen to Psalm 19 today. Uh, we actually have a recording that comes from the Bible experience recording. I would encourage you, if you have your text open, to follow along. It'll probably sound a little bit different than what's written in your text. This comes from today's New International Version, but let's listen together to Psalm 19. Psalm 19, for the director of music. A Psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them. Yet their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens he has pitched a tent for the sun which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and makes its circuit to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. So as we look at the book of Psalms, we have this sense that David tells us God speaks to us in stereo. God speaks to us, first of all, through nature. We saw that in verses 1 through 6 of Psalm 19. God speaks to us clearly through nature. And you've probably had an experience like this. Just a few weeks ago, I took uh, our middle daughter, Anna, up to Life Action Camp. You may remember that um, when they were here, she connected with them and, and uh, is going to spend a few weeks up at their camp in Buchanan, Michigan, serving. And so I took her there for this first one to drop her off. And, and uh, while I was there, Brent Paulus was there. You remember he was one of the speakers here. And, and uh, he and I just kind of sat on, the, on the, uh, the deck chairs they have there overlooking the lake and just sat and talked. And, and as I sat there looking out over the lake and the sun was playing hide and seek with the clouds and like on every breath, there was just the smell of spring, of, of outdoors, it was just this deep peace, just a deep contentment that I felt like the Holy Spirit was, uh, was speaking into my soul. 
And surely you've had, you've had experiences like that where um, in nature you just experience something. You have, a, you have a sense of the presence of God. He, he administers to your soul something that, that just reading or listening to a sermon or doing a Bible study doesn't in the same way. It's because God speaks to us through nature. And everywhere we look in nature, we hear God's voice. We look up in the sky in the middle of the day and it's, it's like the, the, the sun is shouting at us. There is a God and he's incredibly powerful. Or if you walk out in the middle of the night and look up, the, uh, it's like the, the moon is whispering, there is a God and he's romantic. Or if you, if you catch a glimpse of the aurora borealis, you, you get a sense that, that it's cheering. There's a God who made me and he is super creative. Or if you look into the Milky Way, it's like, it's like it shouts, there is a God who has no limits. If you peer into a microscope, you see a God of detail. If you, uh, as Zaya had an opportunity to do on Thursday, when you hold a newborn baby, you experience a God of wonder. If you study a bumblebee, you get a, you get a glimpse of an engineering genius who can do what no other engineer can do to make a bumblebee fly. If you study gravity, this gravity that God created by jumping out of an airplane or riding a roller coaster, you experience a God of excitement. God is everywhere in creation and in nature speaking to us. As a matter of fact, if you gaze up at the stars... And you know how you can read the story of salvation in the formations of the stars. God speaks to us in stereo, and he's all over creation, all over nature. That's one of the channels that God uses to help us experience who he is and understand what he's done. Not only does he speak to us through nature, though, God also speaks to us through scripture, through his word, through the Bible. We can see this in, the, in verses 7 through 11 of Psalm 19. Theologians call these two channels, if you will, nature and scripture. They have fancy words for them. They call them general revelation and special revelation. The idea is that through nature, God speaks to us generally. He gives us a sense of his persona and who he is. And if that's all that God gave us, if that's the only revelation of him that we had, it would be sufficient even though it may not be completely satisfying. But he didn't. He gave us another channel. He gave us scripture. It's through scripture that we begin to understand not just God's persona, but we get to understand that he wants to have a personal relationship with us. We get to know him personally. You see, it's in scripture that God makes clear to us uh, that he loves us, that, that he has a deep love for us, that he has a plan for us and, and hopes and dreams and a desire that we'll fulfill. He, it's in scripture that we begin to learn that, um, that when we're living the dream, when we're on, on top of life's mountains, God's there with us. And when the mountain's gone and we're in the dark valley, it's in scripture that God tells us, I'm there with you then too. It's in scripture that we find out that God knows us and loves us so intimately that he has a special name for us that no one else even knows, that no one else gets to call us. It's in scripture that 
we get to find out, we, we learn that there's nothing he wouldn't do to help us know him. That he went to great lengths and even gave up his son so that we could be in relationship with our heavenly father. All of these things and more we learn in scripture specifically, especially about who God is and how he relates to us. So let's take a minute and let's look at what David said about God's word. We're going to start in verse 7. Actually, we're going to put these verses on the screen. I'm going to ask us to read them together. You'll have the words that are in purple. So if you'll read those aloud together in unison, and then I'll read the words that are in black. So you're going to get us started with verse 7. Is perfect, refreshing the soul. Are trustworthy, making wise the simple are right, giving joy to the heart, are radiant, giving light to the eyes, is pure, enduring forever, are firm, and all of them are righteous. And so these words in purple that you read, they're all the psalmist, David's way of referring to Scripture. You see, when we write poem or when we write music, we, we use things like rhythm and rhyme uh, to make our, our lyrics memorable, to help them stick. When the Hebrews wrote poetry or, or when they wrote lyrics, they used what's called parallelism. Say that with me. Parallelism. You know what parallelism is, right? Like two things that are running side by side, like railroad tracks, they are parallel. If you really want to really have fun, you could say parallelogram, which has nothing to do with this. I just think it's a fun word to say. Um, Hebrews wrote in parallelism. That means that they say the same thing, but they use different words. And so here in Psalm 19, David is using synonymous parallelism. That means that all these words that you read, the commands of the Lord, the fear of the Lord, the decrees of the Lord, the laws of the Lord, that's David's just using different words to say God's word, his scripture. There's all kinds of parallelism throughout the, the, uh, the Old Testament, throughout the book of Psalms. As a matter of fact, I was with Blake Smith earlier this week, and he had a kind of a new study Bible. I said, let me see it. And I, I looked at the book of Psalms. I just wanted to see what kind of stuff it had there, if there's anything good that I could add to the message, and, and there was. Um, but it had a whole page of different kinds of parallelism. David here, though, uses different phrases to say the same thing. He's talking about God's word. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. You know, there's many voices today that suggest to us that God's word isn't indeed perfect, that there's mistakes, that there's errors, that our scientific perspective knows and understands more than some pre-modern superstitious writings ever could. There's voices out there today that would suggest us that there are outright contradictions. If you look at Chronicles and you look at Kings, the numbers are different. And if you look at some of the, some of the details in the Gospels, it seems like Mark writes one thing and John writes another. And so who's really right? How can we trust the Bible if it can't even get its facts straight, some would say. Some people would try to suggest us that society has um, evolved, matured, developed, beyond where biblical people lived. And so we can, we can accept things that they just, they just couldn't accept because of their culture and their time and the limits to their understanding. Now listen, church. 
There are some people who question God's word, not because they seek to undermine faith, not because they don't have a faith in God, but because they're struggling with what to believe. And I want to make sure that we as a community of faith, that we never scoff at someone who would ask questions of God's word, who would say, I don't understand how God's word could say that he created by the, by the word of his mouth. And yet I, I, I listen to my science teacher and, 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 and they say that science proves it was from evolution. You know what? Those questions are okay to ask. Matter of fact, if we can't interrogate what we believe, if we can't ask questions of it, it's worthless. And so as a community of faith, we never want to put someone in their place because they're asking questions. But we have to understand that when David says the law of the Lord is perfect, he's defining the word perfect differently than we would. Right? We say perfect and we think there was no mistakes, no errors, everything's just right as it should be, right? Right as a, as a scientist would look at it and say, yep, nothing contradicts itself. Actually, though, the word that David uses here is the word tamim. I think we're going to put that on the screen. There we go. Tamim. And it means complete or sound. So when, David's, when David says the law of the Lord is tamim, he's not saying that you would look at it and automatically see that there's no contradictions. He's saying it's perfect, it's complete, it's sound, it will accomplish what God wants it to accomplish. And what exactly does does God want his word to accomplish? Notice the next phrase, the law of the Lord is perfect. What's the next word in English? Refreshing the soul. The word that David uses here is the word shuv. It means to turn back or to return. So I would suggest when David says in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. He's saying the law of the word, the word of God, scripture is designed to turn our souls back to God. And that's why we won't scoff at people who ask questions. That's why when someone says, show me why Genesis 1 is true and my biology book isn't, we'll say, I don't know, let's find out together. And we'll embark on a study with them trying to understand. Because we believe that God's word is perfect. And it will always turn the sincere seeker back to God's heart. It'll always point us in the direction that God wants us to go. Not only does he want us to to return our soul to him, not only is the, the goal of his word to turn our soul back to him, but it's also to make me wise. One of God's goals with scripture is to make us wise. David says, the statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. A little while back, I was uh, home, and I think it was over dinner time or maybe before dinner, and, and uh, my, my son looks at me, and he said, Dad, what's bothering you? And uh, I thought, you know, I, I just said, but I'm just anxious about some stuff going on at church. And my son looks at me, and he says, hey, Dad, remember... Cast all of your anxieties on Jesus because he cares for you. And in that moment, I was like, yeah. It's exactly what I needed to hear. 
Now, did my son know exactly what to say because of the, uh, the master's degrees he has in counseling? <laughs> Was it because of the, 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 the years and years of observation of how pastors deal with church issues at home? No, my son's 11. It was because in children's ministry, he had committed 1 Peter 5, 7 to heart. And when he heard the word anxiety or anxious, it just clicked and he knew exactly what to say. You see, this is what scripture does for us. It makes us wise. It helps us to face what we encounter or to help other people face what they encounter. Scripture helps me Scripture helps make me wise. Notice verse eight, David says, the precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. I would suggest that scripture also helps us experience joy. And who doesn't need a little more joy, right? So when you were a kid, how many of you can remember back long enough to when you were a kid and learning to tie your shoes? Do you remember that? All right, we got a couple in the back. That's good. We've got a few right up here. Good, good, good. So when you were learning to tie your shoes, how good did it feel when your mom or your dad or your grandpa or whoever said, good job, buddy. You did a really good job with that. How good did that feel? Am I the only one? I guess for small minds, it's the small things. I can remember uh, when I was learning to play trumpet and uh, I was taking private lessons and... um, I was, I was doing what I was supposed to do. But you know, when you're learning to play an instrument, there's a lot of things you have to learn to play that are just, music teachers, plug your ears. They're just nonsense. I mean, it's, they're, they're teaching you skills that you need to know for, yeah, I get that. But like, really, who likes playing, you know, the brown-eyed dog? I mean, no one's ever even heard of that song. So I can remember the first time I learned to play an actual song. A song that people knew, not just an exercise so that I would build skills in certain areas. I can remember I went to, I practiced this all week and I, I went to my private lessons down in Mr. Nipple's basement and, and he checked it off. That was his way of saying, yep, you nailed it, perfect, well done. And so after he checked it off in the book, I would play that song for anyone who would listen. Anyone who'd give me time of day, I would play that song because I could play a song they knew. The song was, uh, You're a Grand Old Flag. You may have heard of it. I can, rem- I can still remember what happened when I played that song for my grandma Wade. I got my trumpet out in her living room and, and I opened my book and, and I played this song, uh, You're a Grand Old Flag. And partway through, Grandma Wade started singing along. I had never had anyone sing along with my trumpet playing before. I was like, this is so cool. It feels good to do something right. And scripture helps us to understand how to live in a right way. And when we live right, it just feels good. There's joy in knowing that I'm walking in the right direction. I'm doing the right thing. The right thing. Scripture helps me to experience joy. We have a sense from what David writes in Psalm 19 that God is constantly speaking to us through his word, through nature. He's telling us the way that he wants us to go, the way that we can encounter him and experience his greatness. And when David gives us a glimpse into his word, into God's word, did you notice how much he bragged on how good it was? how excellent it was to hear God's voice. 
What I'd like to do as we close today is I'd like to take just a few minutes and reflect on our experience with the Word of God. I think in your notes, I've called this section uh, looking in the mirror. Yeah, looking in the mirror. That comes from the book of James, chapter one, where James says to us, listen, when you read God's word, don't just listen to it and then walk away and not do what it says. When you read God's word, do what it says. So let's reflect a little bit on what David said about God's word. First of all, is God's word more valuable to me than anything else? Is God's word more valuable to me than anything else? David says, uh, your word is more precious than gold, than much pure gold. I have to wonder, is, is my Bible the most valuable thing I possess? We just gave the, the new sixth graders excellent study Bibles. Pastor Andrea picked out great Bibles, and as I was flipping through them, I was just like, man, I wish I'd have something like this when I was their age. Excellent, excellent resources and helps and ways to understand and apply God's Word. But, but when I say, is God's Word more val- valuable to me, I'm not talking about this physical book itself. I mean, I have, I have over a dozen Bibles on my shelf that I've used over the years. It's not about the book. It's about what God teaches me. It's about his word, no matter how I read it, in a book, on an app, on memes, on, on Instagram. When I read God's word, is it more valuable to me than anything? Do I care more about what the Bible says that I'm facing then I care about what friends say or families say or advisors say. Those all have their role. and We should listen for God's voice and their voices too. But we start with scriptures that the most valuable thing, more valuable to me than anything else. Is God's word a delight to me? Is God's word a delight to me? David says, your word is better than sugar. Well, he says honey. Is better than honey, than sweetest honey from the comb. Does anybody have a favorite dessert? Shout them out real quick. What's your favorite dessert? Cheese pie. Someone said cheesecake. I heard pie. Chocolate chip cookies. Hey, we have some of those at the Sweet Tooth Sunday in the back. Ice cream. We don't have any of that back there. Texas. Texas chic. Not just Texas. Texas chic cake. Because everything's bigger in Texas, baby. Texas sheet cake. Absolutely. I was talking with Bob McLuhan. Bob, where are you at, buddy? I was talking with him before church. We were out at the Sweet Tooth Sunday table waiting till after church so we could get some, some sweets. And, and Bob says to me, do you like Rice Krispie treats? Those things are all over the place, and I think they're a waste of time. So um, there's chocolate chip cookies for Bob. Snickerdoodles, I think, is what he took. My favorite, nah, forget it. You can tell by my figure I don't have a favorite dessert. If it's sweet, I eat it. But is this my approach to the Bible? Am I so excited <laughs> that I get a little bit of sweetness here that I read it? <laughs> do, do I eat dessert first, if you will? As a matter of fact, uh, several times over the, the course of the last many months, uh, there's been mornings when I realize that I'm not eating dessert first, if you will. Like I find myself so- scrolling social media or uh, reading the, you know, the, the news online. And in those moments, like the Holy Spirit says to me, Earl, is this more important to you than my word? Not only is God's word a delight to me, but is God's word shaping me? Is it shaping my behavior? 
as I was meditating on this question and what David wrote here at the, the end of Psalm 19, let me just read it to you again. By your words, your servant is warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Is God's word shaping me? I was just reflecting on some questions for me and maybe some for you. Am I content to live an unresolved relational strain with other believers? Do I like it that people seem to come to me with their gossip? Do I find ways to justify doing things that I know are wrong? For me, do I ignore the, uh, uh, the tendency to eat one more cookie than I really need? Clearly, that's one of my forms of gluttony. I don't know what yours are. Maybe it's um, Hacienda Margaritas or social media or Netflix binges. Am I okay with just a little vulgarity in my talk? You know, when I hit my thumb with the hammer and a word slips that I haven't said in years, do I just blow it off? Is it good for my family to be at church only occasionally? Do I prefer to learn about the Bible instead of putting into practice what I'm learning from the Bible? Do I believe that if I just do more good things and I do bad things, God will be pleased with me? Do I live more for the praise of other people than for the praise of God? You see, if any of these things are true in my life, and some of them are, then God's word isn't completely shaping my behavior in those areas. Do I allow God's word to shape who I am? And finally, is God's word the final word on my faults? Listen again to what David says. Who can discern, discern their own errors? Who can discern their own errors? We've all got blind spots. We all do things that are wrong and we don't realize it. We all bump up against each other and, 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 and sometimes we don't realize the unintentional sins we've committed. Forgive my hidden faults because sometimes there's things about me that are in my blind spot. I can't see them. Would your word help me to know what those are? Would they forgive me? Would you keep your servant from willful sins? This is King David, a man after God's own heart. And he says, listen, I struggle with doing things I know I shouldn't do. Keep me from that, oh God, through your word. Don't allow my willful sins to rule over me. I want to be blameless. I want to be innocent of transgression. If King David would say, there's blind spots in my life, there's things that I do that I don't realize it's wrong, and then there's things that I do and I know they're wrong, but doggone it, I still want to do it. Then surely Pastor Earl can say that. Then surely you can say that. And it's in God's word that we find the ability to say, well, to, we allow God's word to have the final word on our faults. And the final word on our faults isn't that we're is, is not that we're defined by them. In God's word, the final word on our faults is that when we're in a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're forgiven, that there's grace, that we can walk in holiness, holiness. That when we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to begin cleaning us up so that those sins don't continue 
to mark up our lives? Do I allow God's word to have final word in my faults by acknowledging that I've got them, by confessing them and then repenting them and turning and walking the other direction and allowing God's word and God's spirit to make me clean again? Beloved, this is our prayer. This is who we want to be. People of the word, people who allow God's word to shape us and and that we would delight in it, that we would savor it, that we would give ear to what it says, that we would seek it out and be obedient to it. And that through all of that, we would be a people pleasing to God. I'd like to close us in prayer today. And and here's what I'd like to do. After I pray, I'm going to close my prayer with, Lord, hear our prayer And at that point, I would like for all of us to close the prayer together by reading off of the screen the last verse of Psalm 19. We'll read that aloud in unison after I say, Lord, hear our prayer. Would you please bow and pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Father, we thank you that your word accomplishes what you've sent it out to accomplish. I thank you, Lord, I thank you in my own life when, uh, when reading your word, when listening to your spirit's voice through your word turns my heart back. When you tilt the mirror a little bit and allow me to see my life reflected in, in your word and, 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 and the mirror that your word is exposes my hidden faults exposes the things, the, the willful sins, the thing that I, that I knew were wrong and still did them, and then calls me to confess and to receive your forgiveness and healing. Lord, I pray that we would continue to become uh, a people of your word who don't just come and listen to, to sermons, who don't just go to Bible studies, but who hide your word in our heart so that it can make us wise who answer people's questions with, with your word, who before uh, you know, consulting um, those who are wise and experienced, we consult your word. Father, thank you for your word. And now as we pray together, we ask that you would make this true of us. Lord, hear our prayer. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Would you please stand and together we'll bless one another. After I pronounce the blessing, if you would say an also to you in that way, we'll bless each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. May you cherish the word of the Lord. May you savor the word of the Lord. And may the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit give you peace.